I hope that you brought your Bible with you today. If you didn't, you should find one under a pew chair near you. I encourage you to take it. We will be turning to various passages this morning. I encourage you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. Uh, that's the first passage I'm going to ask you to turn to. We will be looking at a number of passages as we go through the sermon. We will, as has already been mentioned, have the opportunity to partake in the Lord's Supper. I encourage you to make sure that as God brings things to your mind that uh, you are prepared to partake because God tells us that we are not to eat and drink in an unworthy manner, but a, wor- a manner that's worthy of the work that Christ has done for us. And if you know you have unconfessed sin in your life, we encourage you very highly. Because if not, we eat and drink judgment unto ourselves. This morning is the second in a series of three sermons. One was two weeks ago. The, uh, the last one will be two weeks from now. Um, the subject is homosexuality, what the Bible says as compared to what many churches and particularly the world says. But I have to tell you that instead of the church providing the direction that the wind should blow in our society, unfortunately the church many times mirrors the wind that's blowing in the culture. And so I'm going to encourage you, as I did last time I talked about this, that you understand exactly what the Bible says, that you can, in an intelligent uh, way, be able to express yourself and be prepared to minister to people who indeed are living in sin. And by the way, that's more than just simply homosexuality, but that's any sin. Our job is to be Christ's hands, feet, and mouthpiece to this world. They need good news. They need the truth. They need freedom. You have the privilege and the opportunity to be God's spokesman, his ambassador. If you're wondering, is this a valid topic? The answer is, it is in the news all the time. Whether it's the military and it's don't ask, don't tell. Whether it's state by state and court by court uh, dealing with same-sex marriage and whether that's something that our society and our culture and our government should endorse or whether it's simply churches that are saying, you've got it all wrong. You don't know what the scripture says. The scripture's been mistranslated and misinterpreted um, and nobody really knows. And besides, and this is the big one, uh, what the Bible is talking about when it talks about homosexuality is not what we practice. See, the Bible is talking about dominating people. That's what they say. Go look it up. Um, but we're talking about caring, loving relationships, committed relationships. The Bible doesn't talk about that. It doesn't talk about those things. The answer is they're dead wrong. We're going to look at it this morning. Last time we began by looking at the way Scripture is taken or not taken because many things were added to it to come to the false conclusions that the church as well as the world has been propagating. We also looked at the inhospitable cities. If you remember from then, uh, their take is that the reason God judged Sodom and Gomorrah is because they were inhospitable to strangers. They didn't take care of the poor. I will tell you that they did not do those things. But that is not why God judged them. We will look at that this morning. We ran out of time last time. One last thing before we look at the sermon itself. All sexual immorality is sin. Period. Homosexuality simply is one aspect of that. 
It has a stigma in that it is unnatural compared to most of the others. And I said most, not all. Uh, But it is something that is sin. God sees it as sin. He calls it detestable. He calls it an abomination. uh, And he absolutely tells us that it is not something that we are to be involved in. And it's something that we need to take a stand on. In fact, if you've listened to any news uh, since last Sunday, uh, you will find that somebody that's very famous uh, as a singer, his name's Elton John. I think they call him Sir Elton John. I think he's from England. He made a statement. If you think this subject is not valid, he made a statement. This is what he said. I think Jesus was a compassionate, super intelligent gay man who understood human problems. And I believe that was in that parade magazine. I didn't read it. But I heard it over and over again, looked it up on the internet, and it it is a valid quote. Um, The truth of the matter is, Jesus was compassionate. Truth of the matter is, he was a man, but he was more than a man. He absolutely was not gay. And yes, he does understand human problems, and that's why he uh, came to die on the cross for our sins, because he realized we could not deal with problems on our own. We needed his power, his strength, his wisdom, and his work to be able to deal with sin. The end, I'll give you the conclusion of the sermon. Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we'll we'll go over this through the sermon. But it says, And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. That's where this all goes. It is not, let's see if we can make fun and poke fun and point out sin in somebody else. Our message, our role as Christians, as a church, is that we reach out to those who are enslaved to sin. Those who are in bondage to the things of this world that they've allowed to enter into their lives. That's our responsibility. Anything other than reaching out in love to help other people, to show them the gospel, to show them Christ, to show them truth, we're barking up the wrong tree. So let's go back to Sodom and Gomorrah. You know the story. The story is that um, they were a wicked place. Absolutely were. They had sin of all kinds. God sent two angels down there to check out the place before he would destroy it. They went there and they demanded they come out and they would have homosexual relations with them. The man of the, the, the town, his name was Lot, said, no, 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 I have two daughters here, take them. They didn't want them. And God said, Lot, get your family and get out of here. His family laughed at him. The whole town ridiculed him. Finally, he did leave. His wife actually went with. His daughters went with. Uh, that's not the end of the story. Even get wor- it almost gets even worse after that. Lot's wife, even though she went, she turned around. She became a pillar of salt. I don't know what that looks like, but uh, I'm glad my wife didn't turn into a pillar of salt, and I'm glad your spouse didn't either. The point is, God judged them. Why did he judge them? He judged them for a number of reasons, but only when you get to the New Testament and it becomes crystal clear why he judged them. And indeed it was Ultimately, the last straw, the bottom line was that they were living in sexual immorality, particularly uh, a 
different kind of sexuality, and that was homosexuality. But I'd like to just take you through, and I just pointed these out last time very quickly, but in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 9, it simply says, um, they display their sins like Sodom, they do not even conceal it. Sodom had gotten to the point where it didn't care about its sin. It said, we will do what we want anytime we want, and we'll do it in the open. It was open and blatant, and they didn't care. Even Lot, we know who was a righteous man, he saw it. It says his soul was vexed, but he had lost his power by that time. In Ezekiel chapter 16, <clears throat> it does tell us that Sodom and Gomorrah had a laundry list of sins. For example, it says they had arrogance and abundant food and careless ease. It did, did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and they committed abominations. One point. Sin loves company. You get into one unrepentant sin and I'll guarantee you, you will, like a snowball, begin to get more sin. If you steal from somebody, I can almost guarantee you you're going to have a second sin because you're going to start lying and deceiving. And then you're going to start doing other things, and it just gets out of control. That's the way sin works. Sin loves company. And Sodom and Gomorrah were no exception to that, that rule. And so they did commit lots of sins. Their whole society was shot through. I've got to tell you, before you start pointing all your fingers at Sodom and Gomorrah, look around, look at your life, look at the church, look at the United States. Make sure that you just look at it and say, yeah, that's an example, and we better make sure we don't go there. And I better be a part of the light, not a part of the problem. In Luke chapter 17, we're now in the New Testament, uh, it makes it clear that sin had become a normal part of life in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, as it says this in verse 28 of Luke 17, it says, It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained. It rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. They were doing the normal things of life. They just acted business as usual. And I got to tell you folks, there are sins in our own United States. And fact is, they're even in the church where we just act business as usual. What's the big deal? Why make a big fuss about it? Everybody's doing it anyway. That's what they were doing in Sodom and Gomorrah. And Jesus said, that's what they were doing. Not a good place to be because you can see what the end result was. He rained fire and brimstone and destroyed them all. So sin was the norm. But then we get to the passage that I've asked you already to turn to, 2 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 6. Now it starts to get to the bottom line of the whole thing. And it says there, and if he, that is God, condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter. In other words, he said, look at Sodom and Gomorrah and remember, they are an example. That is why the Old Testament was written. As examples to us, you can find that in numerous places in the New Testament. And he says, verse 7, And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for he, 
For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented, your version may say vexed, day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the righteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority, daring self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Remember, the people that they wanted to have homosexual relations with were angels in the appearance of a man. They reviled angelic majesties. But notice what it says. Sodom and Gomorrah are an example to those that would live ungodly thereafter. That includes us. That includes whoever it is. But he says and points out one specific thing in this passage. He says their sensual conduct. The word sensual has to do with a sensual bodily use for wrong purposes. <clears throat> Moral depravity. The word is used in Romans chapter 13 in a pair of twins. Let me, let me show you how that works. Because you say, well, is the sensuality talking about sexual immorality? The answer is that's how it's used in the New Testament. Let me show you this example. In Romans chapter 13, verse 13, it says this. <clears throat> Let us behave properly as in the day. And now it gives three twins. Not in carousing and drunkenness. It puts those two together. Carousing and drunkenness. Anybody who's been around those, kind, those two things, they go together. One breeds the other. Then it goes to the second set. Not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality. He's saying sexual promiscuity and um, sensuality go together. They are talking about the same thing. And then it has one more. Not in strife and jealousy. And let's face it, those two things also go together. And so he's making it clear that this is sexual immorality. Now, we know from the story it wasn't simply heterosexual sexuality because they could have had two virgin daughters and they didn't want them. They wanted the two men. But now, go to verse 10. Especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires. It's talking about those fleshly desires, and in this case, it is specifically referring to sexual immorality. But that still doesn't quite nail it down, because there's one more passage, and I'd like you to turn to it. And that's Jude chapter, well, there's only one chapter in Jude, but verses 7 and 8 in Jude. It also, again, mentions Sodom and Gomorrah, and it says this, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. Gross immorality, it's the word pornea. We get pornography from it. It's basically talking about any use and abuse of sexuality outside of heterosexual marriage. That's what it's talking about in the Bible. And it covers everything that you can think of when sexuality is abused or used outside of marriage. That's what it covers. But it doesn't simply cover that. It says above and beyond. It's not just the normal sexual immorality. It is something that is 
way beyond the norm, way over the, over the, the, the top. And it says, we know what it is, because it says they went after strange friends. They went after that which was not the normal. Again, it was the last straw. Was God unhappy? And could have God judged them for lots of other things? Yes. Did he? Yes. Was the bottom line their sexual immorality? Was the traditional interpretation of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah correct? The answer is yeah. But I would tell you, make sure you fill in all the blanks and say, yep, it was homosexuality, it was gross immorality, strange flesh, all of those things, but it was also those other things. Because sin loves company. And yeah, when they went one direction, their minds were blinded. Because remember, anytime you live in unrepentant sin, you become blind. Think this way. Here's what sin does to you. Samson will be our example. The end of the book of Judges, Samson is in a pretty poor situation. He has allowed his life just to go rampant with, other, with women and wrecked his life. Here's what he lands up. He lands up blind that gouged out his eyes. He lands up bound, and he lands up like a donkey grinding meal. My bottom line on that is sin blinds, it binds, and it grinds. Sin will take you down. And when you're blind to one sin, because you don't repent of it, other sin will come into your life. And that's exactly what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah. Bottom line, he judged them ultimately because of their sexual immorality and their homosexuality. But I'd like to go to the next one. Because many will say, well, we don't live under the law. And we're in Leviticus chapter 18, if you would please turn there. Leviticus chapter 18, we're going to look at verse, starting at verse 22. But those who would promote and say the Bible does not teach against homosexuality, they would say, but in the law, that's talking about somebody dominating somebody else. It's not talking about loving, caring, committed relationships. And that is a one-string fiddle that is played over and over again. But I propose to you that the book of Leviticus absolutely talks about all kinds of homosexual immorality. It doesn't differentiate anything one way or the other. Let's look at the passage. In Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, it says, Thou shalt not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Now, he makes that very clear. My definition, you've heard it before, definition of abomination, is it's something tech, that is detestable. It's something that's repulsive. My definition is something that makes God sick on the stomach. Okay, that's not an official. That's not a theological definition. That's a practical definition. But he says, this homosexuality is an abomination. God doesn't want anything to do with it. And I'm not going to read the next verses. You can read them for yourself. But... It also says that a woman is not to be involved in bestiality. That's not domination. That's not the context. In fact, as if you read before that, you will find a whole list of sexual sins that have nothing to do with homosexuality. They have to do with incest of all sorts, of adultery of all sorts, and it's all spelled out. He is giving, again, the laundry list. He's saying, these things are wrong. Now, 
Anyone that says we don't live under the law, you're right. We do not live under the law. The law pointed out sin. It made sin exceedingly sinful. It showed you that you can't make it on your own. Sin's horrible. It did that. It was a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. We know that from the New Testament. But what you also need to know is that many of the things that were written under the law are also found in the new law, the New Testament, that are for the church. This is one of them. We will see that as we go through the sermon this morning. But the one I want you to really look at is two chapters later in Leviticus chapter 20, starting at verse 13. Because this one blows apart the theory that it's not talking about committed consensual relationships. Because this one is really clear about that. It says in Leviticus Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13, If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Now, if one was a victim and the other one was the, the one that was victimizing him, God, who is a fair God, never punishes both. For example, in the Old Testament, if you, under the law, I mean, if someone was involved in adultery, both the adulterer and the adulteress were both to be stoned, not one or the other. And if you don't believe that that was true, go to John chapter 8 and you will find out why Jesus told them all to go home. Because they said, we caught her in the act of adultery, but they wouldn't cough up the guy's name. I believe the guy was standing there because he was trying to get out of a big pinch that he was in. And his buddies were trying to help him. Personal opinion, I'll preach a sermon on that sometime. The point is, both had to be stoned. Not just one, both. Why? Because both of them were in it. If one of them was a victim, it was rape or something else, but it wasn't uh, one guilty and one not guilty. In this case, saying both of them were guilty. So it is a consensual relationship. He says they're both guilty. There's no way you can get around that. And in the New Testament, we will find that it continues on. So the law, it was very clear. And in the New Testament, we'll continue to see that. By the way, one other thing, and I'm not going to spend time on this, but if you go to Deuteronomy, it talks about cult prostitutes, and there's a big deal made out of this. Nobody exactly knows clearly what that's talking about. I'll admit that. But here's what it does mean. It could either be homosexual or heterosexual, but here's the bottom line that it tells us. It simply says, you are not to bring the hire of a harlot or the wages of a dog, that's male or female, into the, sit, into the temple as an act of worship. In other words, ill-gotten gains cannot be, you turn around and say, okay, uh, yeah, I know I got this from, from prostitution or something else, but I'll bring it and use it to worship the Lord. I could have used the same example when I talked about gambling a few weeks ago. God doesn't need your ill-gotten gains. In fact, he repudiates them. Don't bring them. They do not honor, glorify, or nor, nor is it to be used to worship me. Bottom line here is this. Jesus did talk about homosexuality. And people say, no, he didn't. But he indirectly did. Because he told us what sexuality was supposed to be used for. It was to be either in heterosexual marriage, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, 
And the two shall become one flesh. It's never anything other than that. Marriage always has been one woman and one man. That is my third sermon. We're going to talk about that, but not today. That's what Jesus taught. From the very beginning, it had said what I just quoted, and Jesus simply requoted it. Because from the beginning, God said, this is why I created you. And he also said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And I got to tell you, there is no lesbian or gay relationship that does that. It's not possible. It doesn't work that way. Because that's not the way God created us. So Jesus did talk about it. The rest of the Bible does talk about it. But it talks about it in a positive way. See, sexuality is not something we point fingers at and say, who this horrible stuff, it's nasty stuff. It can be used that way, just like just about everything else in this world. It can be used in a wrong, sinful way. But he says, no, I have created something that's good and beautiful and right, and I want you to use it that way. When you twist it and distort it and take it from what it's supposed to be, now you have a problem. So I like the way God presents it. He presents most stuff in a very positive way. Exactly what he does here. We have distinct roles, and we are to carry them out. And, again, I mentioned this when I started, any sexual activity outside of marriage is sin. doesn't matter if it's pornography or adultery or fornication of any sort or bestiality or homosexuality. It doesn't matter. It's still sin. So understand, you cut through all of this. If it's not heterosexual marriage, then it's celibacy. That's the two choices. That's God's choice. And he also makes it clear that any benefit or profit that comes from any illicit activity, that does not honor him. It's definitely not what he desires as an act of worship. I need to move on. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I already told you that I'm going to end with that, but I'm going to go to it just to look at it for a moment. As I mentioned in the first sermon, uh, those that propagate this kind of thing, even from church, to say, well, in the New Testament, in Greek, they didn't have a word for homosexual. Well, no, they didn't use English either, as I mentioned, but they did absolutely have a word that means homosexual. The word that is used in this passage is made up of three Greek words, men, plural, bed, lying, homosexual. That's what it comes down to. But it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, it says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Now let's go back. Pretty long list of nasty sin. All kinds of things. You can, you can put almost anybody in there, any place. We've all sinned. We've broken these things. But there are two that we need to look at. I already mentioned the one, homosexual. You may have a version that uses a different word, but it's the same Greek word. It's just they did their best to translate it. It simply means two men lying in a bed. But the other one that causes some grief is the word effeminate. Yours might have a different word there also. But the word is, is hard to know what it means because it's only used three times in the New Testament. So it's kind of hard to get a real grip on it. And the other two times, it's talking about John the Baptist. It says, who are you going to look for when you went out of the wilderness to John? 
Somebody dressed in soft, that's the word, effeminate, clothing. No, you didn't go out in the wilderness to find this, this uh, you know, Grizzly Adams kind of guy. Because he didn't have king's clothing. Ones that wear that kind of clothing are kings and they live in palaces. You see, it wouldn't have been the normal for him. It would have been out of place for John the Baptist, Baptist, who was a guy who lived by himself in the wilderness and ate things that the rest of the people didn't eat, and especially kings didn't eat. Locusts and wild honey. You know, he was a different kind of guy. You wouldn't expect him to be dressed like a king. In other words, it was something that was out of place, was not the normal. And so the word, and, and, and it can mean a lot of different things. So I'm not going to sit here and make a long sermon out of the word effeminate. Simply this, something's out of place. Would it include what today is called transgender and those types of things? The answer is yes, it would. It would include all of those things, but it, it's way broader than that. And to, to get real picky about it, uh, you're probably going to put yourself in a situation where you can't get out of it because you can't back it up. Simply this. It's something in life that's not normal. It's out of place. And so that's what it's referring to. It's a confusion of sexuality. That's the minimum of it is. And so just keep it for that. And then, of course, homosexual. But here's the key thing. And such were some of you. But you were washed. The word washed is in the middle tense. You decided you didn't want to be in that anymore, and you washed yourself. Because that's what it's talking about. But the second two are nothing you can do for yourself. But you were sanctified. You cannot set yourself apart. You can know you're wrong. You can repent of it. You can make choices. But you cannot change yourself. That's what God does. And so that is passive. It means somebody else had to do it to you, for you. And that's exactly what God does. When you make a choice that you do no, no longer want to be bound by these sins which he says you cannot inherit the kingdom of God, then you can make a choice. And when you make that choice by trusting Christ, recognizing that only he can change you, only his life and death and burial and resurrection have the power to change you, then it says God takes you and sanctifies you. Sanctify means set apart. He took you from where you were, whatever that sin happened to be, and put you where he has made provision for you. That's what he has done. Sanctify. From something to something. And then he says, but you were justified. That's also passive. You cannot justify or make yourself righteous. You cannot on your own meet God's standard. That's impossible. Only Christ can do that for you. And that's what God does. He makes us right with God. He gives us what, is, what it takes to meet God's standard. And such were some of you. I absolutely know this from the Bible. And it's also practical. I don't care if you, you've been an alcoholic all your life. You cannot remain an alcoholic unless you bend your elbow. You cannot remain a dope addict unless you shoot up or smoke up or whatever you're going to do. If you stop doing that... You're no longer under the influence. And I've got to tell you, if it's sexuality, it's the same thing. That's the way it is. 
You can make a choice. And God says you can make a choice because he's looking at the Corinthians, which were the most immoral church of all the churches of the New Testament. And he says, and some of you were these kind of people. And that's what they're, but they were no longer that. It is past. They are new people. They're new creatures in Christ. And that is absolutely the hope, the freedom, the escape from bondage and slavery that's available to all of those who are caught up in the bondage of sin. And and he's making that very clear. But let me go to one more passage that deals with this, and then we'll look at Romans chapter 1, which is the definitive passage. If you return to 1 Timothy chapter 1, it goes back, at, and we're, we're going to look at 1 Timothy 1, starting at verse 8, and we're just going to look at a couple of verses there. But it goes back to the Old Testament law. We already talked about what God said about homosexuality under the law. But he goes back and he says this. He says, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law was not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. He said, he didn't say you live under the law, but the law pointed out the exceeding sinfulness of sin. It pointed out God's will. God's direction in many different areas. It was an external restraint. But I'll tell you what, if you don't have that inward righteousness that only comes by trusting Christ and the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, the law still has some effect on you. It is that that shows you who you are in God's sight. And he says, these are the things that fit under the law. And you go back to the Old Testament, you'll find all of these things are wrong under the law. Most of them had a death penalty attached to them. And one of those is homosexual. So you can't look at it and say, I don't understand, the, I don't understand what the Bible's talking about. The company it keeps is right in with all the other things that we would call sin. He also mentions, that's what the law showed you. So it's not like, oh, well, that was the law. That doesn't mean anything. Oh, yes, it does, because the law showed you that it was wrong. In fact, is if you're butting heads against that, it simply says you're lawless and rebellious, ungodly and sinners, unholy and profane. Whew. I'll tell you what, you got a mouthful there. The law showed us that. The New Testament simply confirms that. But it also confirms that you don't have to stay there. Anybody that tells you that a person was born that way and cannot change is dead wrong because you can't change. You could say, well, I was born heterosexual and I'm some dog chasing women all the time. Or I'm a woman that has to keep having more men. I can tell you, you can make a choice not to do that. And you know what? Were you born that way? The answer is, yeah, we were all born with a sin nature. You may be the kind of person that blows up at the drop of a hat. Anger. You were born that way because you were born with a sin nature. You may be the kind of person that runs from trouble instead of fighting. You might be the person that wants to fight everything. It doesn't matter what it is. We were all born sinners. We've been affected in every way by sin. And yeah, there are people that probably have those, ten- not probably, do have tendencies 
to this kind of perverted sexuality. No, no doubt about that. So I would agree with that. But it doesn't mean you have to stay there. That's the freedom. You shall know the truth. And the truth will indeed set you free. I don't have to live in slavery to the past. But let's look at one more. Let's look at the unnatural affections. This is the one that really kind of boils my blood because when those that are promoting this, and especially from the church, they say, well, this is talking about the way you were born, and if you were born homosexual, for you to change and become heterosexual, that would be against your nature. And they say, that's what it's talking about. If you leave out a few phrases, you can come to that conclusion. But that's like all the rest of the Bible. If you leave out some of the phrases, leave out some of the truth, you can come to any conclusion you want. But this one here has an airtight case as we look through it. So if you would follow me, please. And I'm going to start in Romans chapter 1, and I'm just going to point out a few things because I'm out of time. But it says that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You will find that in verse 18. But it goes on to say that even though they knew God, this is verse 21, they didn't honor him as God, nor did they give thanks. They became futile, vain, empty in their speculations. Uh, they basically said, who knows? Uh, their foolish heart was darkened. Remember the blindness that sin brings? Professing to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged God's glory for the glory of the things of this earth. And then verse 24 is where I want to really start honing in. Therefore, as a result of those things, they were worshiping the creation instead of the creator. Therefore, God gave them over. He said, that's it? You want to do it? Go for it. You ever done that with your kids? They keep saying, okay, I want more candy, more candy. And one day you go, you know what? Here's the whole can of candy. Have at it. Okay? Now, I'm not recommending that. I'm just saying that's this kind of thing. Because after a while, you probably have a kid that, well, let's face it, the, the porcelain throne is their friend at that moment. You know, because they're in trouble. Because they overdid it. That's what God says. He's done it other times. God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity that their bodies may be dishonored among them. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature. Usually that's us. That's humanism. We serve ourselves rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, shameful, dishonoring things in their lives. What are those shameful, dishonoring, degrading passions? We don't have to guess because the verse just continues on and explains. For their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. That doesn't prove a whole lot at that moment. We could go with uh, that theory that, well, I was born homosexual, so if I changed, that would be against my nature. But verse 27 clears that up real quick. In the same way, so you've got to look at both of these the same, male and female the same. Also, the men ab abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. So you cannot come to that conclusion if you believe what the Bible says. I happen to believe that God 
didn't stutter. He says what he means and means what he says. And he said they exchanged the natural function, which was that with a woman, heterosexual, marriage, which God said from the very beginning was good, right, and proper. They exchanged that for something that was degrading, something that was indecent, and something that had a built-in penalty. We know that the immoral man, and it's not talking about homosexuality there, it's talking about immorality, an immoral man sins against his own body. And here, it's talking about homosexuality, and it's repeating that same principle, that there's a due penalty that comes with it. Indeed, it's saying there is a natural and there is an unnatural. As I mentioned before, from the very beginning, God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Adam and Eve weren't going to fill the earth by themselves. This is a universal principle that continues on into the New Testament and to this day. What is the bottom line? As we come before the Lord's table, this is a powerful symbol. It's not his body and it's not his blood. It is a symbol of that. As I like to say, it's God's object lesson to remind us of the great price that was paid for our sin. It reminds us of how horrible sin is, and I don't care what the tag on the sin is. Sin is anything that does not glorify God, does not please God. That's what it comes down to. Anything. And homosexuality simply has to be, is one of those things. But I don't have to live in bondage because the ultimate price was paid for my sin. I can be free. I don't have to live in blindness. I don't have to live in the past. No matter what I've done, I can be free in Christ. And when we partake of this, we are proclaiming His death till He comes. There are a couple of things you need to be reminded of. It says that if you eat and drink in an unworthy manner, you eat and drink judgment to yourself. In other words, if you claim Christ and you're living in unrepentant known sin, you're not living a life that's worthy. You're eating and drinking judgment to yourself. Nobody will look over your shoulder, but I've got to tell you, if you know you're living in sin and won't repent of it, please do yourself a favor and don't participate. Nobody's going to question you. Just don't do it. Because if you do... You're going to cause yourself problems. And it won't be because of the leaders of this church or me. It'll be because God says that's the way he does it. On the other hand, when you do participate, you are saying publicly, I believe that Christ has died for my sins. I know that I'm right with him and living for him. And I want you to know it too. You can look at me and I will be a light to help you through a dark, dreary, hard world to live in. This is not the supper of Garden Chapel. This is the Lord's Supper. If you've trusted Christ and you're living in fellowship with God and you are living in fellowship with those around you, welcome, participate. If you're not, you need to trust Christ. You need to forgive, you need to repent and confess your sin and get that straightened out. Otherwise, as I already mentioned, you eat and drink judgment unto yourself. I'm going to ask the men to come.